um, starting a brand new series on morality. Yay! How exciting! Joel, what a great topic. Um, this one is going to be on, um, and it's not uh, going up there. Let's try it again. Um, what I want to do in, in this series is um, is talk about it in perhaps a way that is um, fresh, different than what you've used to uh, hearing, and uh, perhaps uh, my hope my hope is that it actually guides us in a way to uh, think about morality uh, maybe differently than what you're used to thinking about, it and then be able to act in a new way. Um, and I think, uh, given our day to day, there's there's a lot of um, confusion around it. And so um, <clears throat> uh, the title of, that's not going up there. That's uh, some technical problems here. But um, the title is True Morality. I'm right, you're wrong. <clears throat> um, <laughs> it, because that's kind of how it goes, right? It's, it's um, I'm right, you're wrong, um, and... I'm right, and that's, and I, I just don't need to prove it. I'm just right, you know. Or there's a sort of like my morality is the right morality, and everybody else's is wrong. At some point, you sort of start to say to yourself, "Well, then, if if, if everybody's right about their morality, then then who's wrong?" Well, for some of us, it's pretty easy. We just say, "Well, they are wrong." Clearly. <laughs> they just don't think of it correctly, right? And so we can get entrenched in our particular uh, views about things, um, and it doesn't really move us anywhere. And no one's really convinced, you know. Um, it's remarkable how people still post, even more today, on social media, their views about particular things. I, I don't know what the goal is. Like, I'm really curious. I want to start to ask people, but they won't answer me when I do. I have asked. Um, is, what's your goal? Like, what are you trying to achieve by this? Is it to shame the other side? Is it to somehow convince them? Because if you think you're going to convince them, you're not. Actually, they're in the same way that you're not convinced by other posts, right? So why would, what would make you think that you're going to convince them through your posting, particularly if it's meant to create some shame or humiliation or take a jab at, at other people, right? So we're not really able to actually have conversation around almost anything where we're disagreeing. And so it's basically done through these mediums where you don't really have to face the other person and, um, and potential loss of, of relationship or the, 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 the discomfort of having to actually have an engagement about this. Um, and so I thought um, maybe starting up by just surfacing the obvious, which is that uh, I'm right and you're wrong and starting there. Um, so we're going to talk about true morality uh, from that perspective. Uh, I think the first thing um, that might be helpful for us to think about is um, before uh, it, it's yeah I think before we get into well there's two things I want to say right at the right at the beginning and that is to sort of get pan back a little bit get behind the whole idea of morality where does it come from first of all I think it's an important question because we just assume that we know when we're right um, and other people are wrong but I'm not sure that we actually have Thank you. Uh, I'm not sure that we actually have a, um, a, a way to think about how we think about things. Where did it come from? How did we start uh, at the positions we are in um, uh, that we hold currently? Um, so uh, that's the first thing is everybody's right. No one's wrong. Um, the second one is everybody judges, right, in America. I mean, this is, this is, there's nobody that 
really almost hardly anyone doesn't judge um, in some way, judge somebody else or judge another person. party's view or another church or another group. I mean, it's just this, there's a lot of that going on. Um, and I think that that um, is part of the, the two things I really want to address this morning, um, which is all we have time for. And then next week, we'll jump into some um, other topics on morality. Um, but uh, the first question is, what is um, morality? I think it's important to sort of establish that. Um, it, uh, morality is defined as the principles upon which right and wrong are determined. The principles upon which right and wrong. Not the right and wrong, but the principles behind it. So, for example, someone might say capital punishment is wrong and it is based upon the principle. So that would be the, 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 the principle itself that's behind that statement. The principle is that life is of highest value, right? So for those who would say... Um, capital punishment is wrong, they're basing it on uh, a higher value or that this principle that's the higher value, which is life, right? Conversely, the other side would make the same argument based on the same principles. So, which is interesting, right? Because that's actually true. I have friends who believe in capital punishment. I have relatives who do, and their arguments are, yeah, it's because of life. Life is so important that you have to take another life for it to be equal. It's sort of that justice thinking. So, so there's a lot of rationality behind all these that undergird these views. I picked capital punishment for obvious reasons. If I had picked anything else that's currently the hot button, uh, that would have tripped your amygdala. Your fight, flight, freeze, fawn uh, uh, response would have overridden any rational part of your brain and you would have shut down on me just like that. So I've chosen a different topic to address. <laughs> Something that's currently not hot button. It may be for you personally, but at least in general, it's not being, uh, it's, it doesn't have that fire behind it. Um, <clears throat> so there's this, uh, I've ref- referenced him um, numerous times. There's this social psychologist named Jonathan Haidt. And I really, 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 really um, encourage you guys to listen to him, read about him. He is, he's a remarkable mind, first of all, uh, considered incredibly brilliant by many of his peers. Um, and uh, it's, his last name is spelled H-A-I-D-T, Jonathan Haidt. Um, and what he's doing currently, he wrote this book called The Righteous Mind, in which he argues for um, that uh, our moral starting point seems to be based on research, pure research across thousands and thousands and thousands of people um, uh, across uh, America, that it seems to be based upon something that starts before we get to the rational mind. It's something that we're almost born with. Um, and that they're at least starting points. They're not fixed, but they're, they're, they're sort of a starting point um, that your brain begins life with. And what he argues for, and right now what he's doing is actually trying to bring both sides together to have really good conversations in pursuit of truth, in pursuit of practical solutions for this country, which I admire. Anybody who's trying to do that, to bring the opposite sides together to say, listen, there's a lot of great thoughts on both sides. We've got to stop this shouting, this yelling, this rhetoric, um, because it's really not helpful to anybody. 
We're not moving anything forward. We're actually destroying ourselves. Let's see if we can actually work together. And so that's my heart as well. I, I, that's what I want to lean towards, not shaming anybody, not making anybody feel stupid. Um, I do that in private, um, and I get it out before I come on Sundays. I try. And, uh, but uh, but it's, um, it's, 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 that's our, that's our, none of us are getting this perfect. Of course, we're going to have our moments. We're going to say something. We're gonna, but if we can actually kind of put that as the higher value, like we're trying to do what the, the, the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation keep trying to communicate to us that there's a better way forward is, you know, that, that's, that's really what we're trying to do is to say in the kingdom of, even if you don't, even if for you right now, you think, well, I'm focused on the church, not on the world. The church itself is the most divided place in the world right now. <laughs> so, I mean, think about this for a moment, right? The place that should have the greatest unity has the greatest division and it's right along party lines. That's disgusting, right? I mean, it shouldn't be that way. If anything, we should be crying over that, saying, God, please help us, forgive us for being so divisive in the church of Jesus Christ, the church for which Christ died, right? So we want to see if we can move forward to say, hey, let's see if we can actually have uh, a way forward that's helpful. And I think what Jonathan Haidt is suggesting here is helpful. So let me give you his sort of five. He gives five um, Five uh, descriptors of morality. I don't know how to, how to phrase that, but um, these are the five basics that we all start out with in terms of our moral underpinnings. And uh, the five are this. Um, all right, so let's talk about uh, these five. Um, so uh, harm slash care. So that's the first one, harm slash care. Um, we sort of all know that harming other people, right from, even from really young, it seems like, again, this is based on, on, on lots and lots and lots of data and research um, and is now becoming fairly well accepted um, that this is how we, we think universally, is that there's this sort of harm and care morality that functions within all of us. Don't harm and do show care for, for other people, right? And so um, we're all sort of driven to that when we teach our kids about that, you know, to care, not to, not to show harm. But even young, 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 young little ones, before they even are taught anything, you can start to see aspects of that care where one you know, child will seem to show some compassion to another child. It's, 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 it's there, but it's also primitive, right? So there's also the taking, a lot of that happening as well. So uh, harm care. Um, the second one is fairness and reciprocity. Fairness slash reciprocity. So this one has to do with right and wrong. You know, fairness is, is you know, uh, Johnny got a larger piece of cake than Susie did. And so Susie's upset because that's not fair. That whole fairness thing, again, is very there. I mean, you see this. If you have more than one kid, you see this, right? You see the whole thing playing itself out in fairness um, and in reciprocity, which is, you know, if I do for you, you do for me. There's a lot of that, you know, even currently in our, in our culture. Um, there's also in-group slash loyalty, so this is sort of like my tribe, my people, right? So there's that. There's, there's my people, my tribe. This is, it's the reason why you feel more compassion when someone on your political side um, is hurt 
um, you're going to show or has made a mistake. You're going to show more compassion. Whereas if it's the other side, there's less compassion, right? This is, this is true. If we're kind of being truthful about ourselves, I can say that's true for me. So you can all say that's true for you too. <laughs> it's, it's just the way we're all, we're all made, you know, it, 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 we have to work against that. It's not natural. And there's a reason why, you know, we, we care for our family and we do so more than other. And I'm not saying we shouldn't. We should care for our family and protect our family. That's our first responsibility. But does care get beyond that and we grow in compassion that's larger and larger and more, and more inclusive of other people, not just of our own immediate tribe? But that's one of the moralities is very much that. It starts with care for the tribe, care for the, for the group. And loyalty is a very big value there. Now, conversely, there are other people who say, oh, this whole tribal thinking is, is, is uh, you know, it, it shouldn't be here. We shouldn't have any of it, right? So that's where there's some, a lot of debate there. But that's where, um, anyways, I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more in terms of how it breaks up even between uh, liberals and conservatives, um, because it does along the lines here. So, and then authority and respect, authority and respect, like some people, um, you know, again, value authority, authority, um, is, is there for a purpose, uh, and have people have no problem. I interview people a lot, hundreds of people. And when I do so, I will ask them questions about that. What's your, how, how do you feel about authority? And I'm telling you, it really does break up pretty much 50, 50, I get people who say, I hate authority. You know, I distrust authority. And then I have other people who say, I have zero problem with authority. I'm fine with it. So, and it doesn't, and it, there's no like group that you can pin that on. It seems like it's just by individual. All right, so um, purity and sanctity is the last one. Purity and sanctity. So purity, this is sort of a purity mindset, like, you know, purity around sexuality. But there's also purity now around food. Um, so there's a lot of uh, this, this purity thing is deeply in, in bed, bedded within, um, within us apparently. Um, so here's what, uh, uh, here's what, uh, uh, Jonathan Haidt says is that based on his research as, um, again, many, many times this has been done and this has been done to, to, to test the tests itself, but it seems to break up pretty much around, um, where, uh, more conservatives would lean on uh, harm care, the first two, harm care, fairness, and reciprocity. I mean, I'm sorry, harm care, fairness, and reciprocity are the, more of the liberal side, and the conservative side would be the last three, uh, in-group loyalty, authority, respect, purity, and sanctity. Now, that's not, again, that's not like, that means you, if you're liberal, you only have the first two and not the last three. That's not what it's saying at all. So you have all of them but it's just that there are certain ones that you tend to prefer or you have more of that acting within you, right? So it's a good place to start to be self-aware, like, oh, I start there. I start in that place, right? There's a, there's a personality system called the Big Five that is supported by a lot of psychology. Again, this has been researched along among lots and lots of people. There's this idea of openness, meaning that you kind of are creative and you see all kinds of possibilities and you're a big visionary and you're, you're, you're kind of open-minded about a lot of things. That tends more towards liberal people, mostly. That's the way it seems to break up. And then there's the conscientiousness factor, which is that's the ability to actually put a plan into motion and get things done, right? We see that both are incredibly valuable. You, you can't live without one. You can't be one without the other. You need both. And this is what he's arguing for is that if you are predominantly one, you need the other. 
You can't live without the other. And to think we can is actually very self-destructive. And so we need to have both because both have gifts and contribution to make that could be tremendously helpful. All right, so uh, this is, uh, so his, uh, one of the final points which I really love is moral authority comes from moral humility. Um, and I wanna talk about that and get into the book of Genesis. So since we don't have it up here, Genesis chapter three, starting at verse three. Genesis chapter three, starting at verse three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals. Let me, first of all, before I even read this, let me just set it up that this is chapter three, not chapter one. So chapter one begins with the creation story. And then we get to chapter, by the time we get to chapter three, this is where there's the first entry point of um, something going wrong in the story, right? So up to this point, things are going well, and then we enter into chapter three and things are going in the other direction. And the author says this, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Right now, this is the command that God had given to Adam and Eve was do not eat of the tree of the, what? Knowledge of good and evil, right? The knowledge of good, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the tree that God had said, don't eat of this, but you may eat of any tree in the garden, right? So as it applies to morality, the knowledge of good and evil, right? That's morality. It's the ability, it's the principle that, that is behind our ability to make a decision about what is right and wrong, right? So right in the ancient world, there is this understanding that morality is something that we all are trying to pursue. And as I said at the beginning, I'm right, you're wrong, you know, pointing that out and the, 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 the belief in holding on to that, plus in addition to that, the judgment, okay? So the metaphor I'm gonna use is that we all want to hold the flashlight and point at other people's mistakes, sins, failures, shortcomings, hypocrisies, all the stuff that we prefer doing instead of walking into the light, being subject to the sun that rises each day and having to walk into the light that we are all exposed by. We'd rather actually be in the dark and shine the light on others because it doesn't expose us. But to walk into the sunlight exposes everything and all can be seen. And this is the problem here. So as we read on, uh, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did, did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. 
So right from the beginning, there is this desire to know what good and evil, to know, to have that knowledge of good and evil. If it wasn't a problem, God would have said, no problem, eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If that was the goal, was for us to have control, to have perfect understanding of all things uh, that would have been given to us. It would not have been a, an imperative against it. Why would there be an imperative against the knowledge of good? It seems like a good thing, doesn't it? Doesn't having the knowledge of good and evil. Now, some would say, well, it's just the command that God would give. But I don't know that that's actually true. I think that um, the command is, is, very, is not just about the command. It's about the thing itself. That there's something about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of possessing that knowledge that was not good for Adam and Eve. And what I am not saying at all or hinting at is that we should not have any knowledge of morality or good and evil That's what we, at all what we're saying. But instead, it's the, it's the desire to possess it as a way to control it. It's the desire once again to have a flashlight as opposed to walking into the light ourselves. Because that's universally true for all humans. Remember John chapter three, if you may remember this particular passage, is that Jesus says men prefer darkness over light because they could hide in the darkness about who they really are and what's really going on. This is universe. This is John chapter three. This is John starting out his letter to say in John chapter three, verse 16, that is so memorized and so quoted for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And the second one says, but God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then he goes on to say, but then this is the problem. People prefer darkness over light. That's why they hide in the darkness. They'd rather be in the darkness shining their flashlights on other people as opposed to walking into the light because that exposes our, we don't want to be exposed. We don't want our motives to be surfaced, right? And so behind morality, behind our moralizing, we are asked and invited by Christ to walk into the light so that we could be seen, right? And actually what's wonderful about that, as uncomfortable as it is, is it takes so much pressure off of us because you and I, honestly, it's a big burden to have to judge the world, isn't it? <laughs> it's a big burden to hide. Both are. But I would suggest it's actually more of a burden for us long-term to judge other people than it is to just walk into the light. I think that's the reason why the burden that Jesus asks us to carry is light. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. It's like, I'm not asking you to stand in judgment over people. What I'm asking you to do is to release yourself of that responsibility. It's far weighty, too weighty for you. And here's what happens if you follow Genesis is when you begin to shine your light on other people, you get exposed and you are seen as naked and you're ashamed. How many pastors do you know, have you heard of, who have moralized and judged and then themselves have been exposed? How many now? I can date it all the way back to Jimmy Swaggart. Man, I grew up in that era. Man, we were Pentecostal. We were holiness Pentecostal. We were into that world deep. 
and our morality on the surface looked damn good. I mean, the light, we shined. We were so good. But underneath all that, we knew of the secret stories that we tried to hide and eventually they became, became exposed and then we were found naked and ashamed, right? And here's the thing that's wonderful about that is when you walk into the light, you're also naked and ashamed. <laughs> but at least in that light, you are enveloped by the grace of a loving God who says, finally, thank you. Come on in because I can handle this. I can handle all that. Right? And so the true, and I'll talk about this some more maybe next week, is the true moral authority we have is when we ourselves have walked into the light boldly and courageously, trembling in fear of being seen for who we really are and what's underneath. But we boldly walk in, and as we're exposed, we're transformed, and we walk out different than we walked in. We engage the angel of the Lord and we begin to wrestle the angel of the Lord saying, I will not let go of you until you bless me, essentially until you change me. And in that wrestling match that we have with the angel of God, we both lose and we win. It's a remarkable contrast and paradox in that story. If you read it, you have wrestled with God and men and you have won. Wait, I thought I lost. <laughs> my hip got wrenched, the story of Jacob. In Genesis 32, my, my hip is wrenched out. Right? That's, that's a losing, you can't, you can't fight, you can't wrestle when your hip is out of joint. But the thing is that something in him is transformed as he wrestles, and when he comes out of that, he comes out different. And he walks different, and his character is, has become changed. It's not that he's perfect. He doesn't go back to things, but there's something different about him. Right? And in that sense, we have at that point, I think we will have more moral authority as individuals. Right? But first it starts by understanding that there are some things that we're born with. We're born with predispositions, folks. We are, we're born with them. You see them in, in, the, kid, in the kids you raise. We're born with predispositions and we acknowledge that and we bring all of that into it. And we start with what I believe are several things that I'd like to finish off with and give you guys as, um, as I think a way forward for us. I think the first thing we have to start with is understanding, well, before I give you the list, the, the list of these that I think are uh, helpful characteristics, um, as we grow in our, our own path, on our own path towards morality, is that we begin with understanding that none of us actually seeks truth. We really don't. What we're seeking is confirmation of our biases, of our beliefs. When we go into church, when we go onto the news and we listen to, there's a reason why we listen to the same stuff that supports our beliefs over and over again. There's a reason why we prefer to listen to a particular like Fox News or CNN, and we prefer to listen to that because they lob insults at the other group or they set up straw men. In other words, these aren't real beliefs about the other side, but we set them up and they knock them down. And even when they interview somebody from the other side, they interview a lackey generally, somebody who's not really good at what they do, or somebody that's, an, that's a, a caricature of the other side. 
They don't, they don't actually have a thoughtful person, and they don't really give space or time. You know how long, how many seconds it actually lasts, these interviews? You know, very few. And so we really never listen to the other. We don't, because what we want is we want to see how dumb the other side, how wrong the other side is, in order to have our own biases and beliefs confirmed. We're not seeking truth, folks. We really aren't. That's not our predisposition. And so we, we, we have to make a commitment that I'm going to seek truth. And if I'm going to seek truth, it means that I'm going to have to stop being in my own echo chamber. I'm going to have to get out of that. And that's terrifying, right? So we start out, we start recognizing we need to pursue truth. And we have to have a, a commitment to that. I'm making a commitment. So that's the first one. I'm making a commitment and the commitment is this pursuit of truth. I'm going to pursue truth. And the only way I can pursue truth, although the more, I shouldn't say the only way, but, um, but one of the ways that's, re that's really important that's not happening much today is in order for me to seek truth, that means I'm going to have to actually be confronted with something that is counter to what I already start out life believing or what I currently believe or think now. That's, that's an, it's so important. We, we think we're rational beings. Like, no, 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 I believe, I, I just, I can, I can rationalize it. I, that's what I believe. I'm high, I'm, I tend very much towards the rational. I'm very highly rational. So for me, I just, I, I love that space. But the thing is that I recognize that I'm not actually, because there's a lot more to, to, to us as human beings. We're influenced by our emotions. We're influenced by our culture, by our environment, by our upbringing. All these things influence how we think. And so truth is something we have to be committed to saying, I'm going to pursue it at all costs because Christ is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You're not going to find it in some political party. You're not going to find it in some localized church. You're going to find it in me, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And I think pursuing Jesus and following Jesus at all costs is going to be the commitment the church is going to have to be, is going to have to make above everything else, above political ideologies, above religious beliefs, above all of this. We're going to have to say to those things, you're going to have to take second place for now in my life because I'm committed to pursuing truth. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I'm gonna say more about this in the coming weeks, that our foundation and our root has to be the person of Jesus Christ. It cannot be anything else. It has to be rooted in Christ. If it does not look like Jesus, we have to question it. If our views about things do not look like Jesus, we have to question it. And so it may be that you spend some time reading the Gospels again to get a hold of who this Jesus is. Rereading the Gospels through, not looking for bias confirmation, but actually understanding I'm already biased. So when I read this, I'm going to read this aware of my, try the best as I can to be aware of my biases. And I'm going to read it with that new sense of like, maybe there's something I haven't seen here before. And maybe I can be changed and challenged to grow. Right? So a uh, commitment to, to, to truth. Second one is humility. That quote by Jonathan Hayes said dead on humility and our morality. Like I might be wrong. Isn't that a good starting point when you're having a conversation with somebody, but not like patronizingly. So like really meaning it, 
<laughs> like I might be wrong here and I'm working to, to, to ferret that out. So I would appreciate your, your thoughts and your feedback on this. Humility in our approach to morality. I believe this to be wrong. I've always believed this to be wrong. I'm, you know, like if you're going to have a conversation about this, if you think about, I'll, I'll touch one of the touchy subjects here, but if you think about like, uh, like abortion that you say, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm personally pro-life, but you know what? I want to at least hear what's going on with the other side. I want to hear because obviously the characterizations or the caricatures of the, of other people, that's not healthy. That's not good. They're people. <laughs> and I need to love my neighbor as I love myself. So how does that look in actual practice? You know, so, uh, humility, humility about these things. Um, so starting point is I might be wrong, but here are my beliefs about things at this point. I'd love to hear yours. Um, the third one is we're going to have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable because if we don't have a disposition, if we don't have the, the ability to, um, to, to become, to, to be okay being uncomfortable, right? We're, we're so comfort oriented as a culture. Like we like, again, and, and by the way, social media now knows that artificial intelligence is scary. What's going on these days. Like the, to, to the ability to really focus all of, of, of the, uh, uh, articles and, and, uh, that, that, that are, uh, support what you already think to just kind of put you in that echo chamber very easily. And so you end up in a group. You don't even realize you're in a tribe on social media. You're in a tribe, you know, wherever you go. And so, uh, and so to get out of that is, is going to be um, very uncomfortable. Like, who can I speak with that doesn't think the way I think? Who can I actually begin to engage? How can I begin to move towards what I already know? I'm going to be avoidant of that naturally. So how do I push beyond that? I think will be, and, and I wish, man, I wish I had time because I'd go through all the scriptures on this, that discomfort is a normal way for the disciples Jesus led them through constant discomfort, states of discomfort. There wasn't, you can't read the gospels and come up with any sort of, like they were comfortable. They finally arrived and got, I mean, they just, they ate bread and fish and really like chilled out. Like it was great. Man, I would have loved to follow Jesus. They just kind of went around, did great things, sat around and ate and talked and shared stories. They fished a lot, you know, you know, it was really relaxed, laid back. You know, it's, there's no notion of that. It, it, the whole entire thing is like, I would hate to have been one of the disciples as much as I'd want to be near Jesus. Like that's a terribly uncomfortable way to live. Like he's messing with your head all the time. He's messing with the, the, the general conceptions of how things work all the time. Yeah. Annoying, annoying. <laughs> Jesus was annoying. <laughs> So, uh, let's get, you know, kind of like take the veneer off of Jesus and how we see him, you know, he was annoying in all the right ways, but if God's not annoying to us, then we have sort of traded roles. God creates us in our image. And then we, we, we do the same. We create God in our image. That's how God becomes comfortable to us. It's because we have a God in our mind that looks like us. That's, that's, you know, kind of thinks the way we think. But if we begin to understand that holiness means Holiness actually means other than, separate from. Since when has this God become so familiar to us that he's comfortable? A holy God would never be a comfortable God to anybody, to none of us. None of us would ever feel like I'm on the inside, they're on the outside. In what universe would a holy God 
be that kind of a God to us. A God that says, yeah, I'm, I'm holy, I'm other than, I'm completely, eternally separate and different and outside of, at the same time, intimately close to you. B- but I'm in your back pocket too. I'm your buddy. I'm, I'm, I'm on your side. In what universe would that be true? None. Right? So, so, so this God, this God who is holy other than, is a God that is so far different than me that it should create a measure of discomfort, which is why everybody who ever encountered the divine in the Old Testament did what? They trembled. They fell. They were not going, wow, cool. Let's hang out. I've been dying to ask you about this. (laughs) It was, you know, anything but that sort of a response, right? So that's really good for us to maintain that understanding of a God that is holy other than because the path of, com- of discomfort is the path of following Jesus. And I think Jesus is leading us today. And this is sort of my prophetic sense of things. I think Jesus is leading us to do something completely contrary to what the world is doing. And that's, we're going to have to start crossing over to the other side and having conversations. And that means with every single group that exists in this world, I'm going to have to do it. You know, a buddy of mine um, who's preached here before talked about, he's left the names um, outside, but talked about the, a certain um, refugee that came across um, to the U.S. And although he's worked with so many refugees, there was one that actually was bent on terrorism. But because these people were determined to be uncomfortable and to meet and sit with refugees and to have meals with them and to share their food, to share their lives with them, to bring them into their homes, this young man converted to Jesus Christ. This is an actual story. This isn't something you read about. This is the guy who preached here, Greg Detweiler, somebody that he knows personally, right? We're going to have to do this crossover. So many wonderful stories that will emerge as we begin to do this. That we say, you know what? I'm going to shut off social media. For some of you who did that during our fast in the last 40 days, right? Some of you shut off social media. We're going to have perhaps to do that. To like say, I'm not going to look at social media anymore. I'm not going to do this because there are people in power who are making money off of me doing this. And I'm not going to do this anymore. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to check it infrequently just to keep up on things and to share things with friends. But I'm going to make it a discipline of mine Instead of doing that, to actually begin to sit with people that are different than I am and to have conversations, meaningful conversations with them. So I'm going to choose the path of discomfort over the path of comfort. I think that's following Jesus. The last one is, um, or the last two, (laughs) understanding. I think we're going to have to seek to understand. Um, And, um, oh man, I wish I had time because I wanted to do this live with the volunteer here. But someone who believes something that's a little diff- that's different than, than what I believe and to actually sit there and model to you the path of understanding. Because it, it, it really is about asking questions in a way that you finally understand. Not, a, not questions to try to undermine, but questions to understand to the degree that you could actually reframe what they say to you that they, in a way that they would say, that's exactly it. That's how I think about it. But very few of us have patience for that, right? <laughs> How many have patience for that? I don't. When someone's talking, it's like, 
I can get to it. Let's go. Let's, you know, it's quick. Let's, let's move to, let's, I, I know where you're going with this. I can already finish this. You know, that's the way my mind works, but that doesn't honor a person. And when I, whenever I do it it, 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 it hurts somebody, right? So it's not good. It dishonors a person, but to actually be able to understand to the degree that you can reframe what they're saying so that they actually say, now you got it. That's how I see it. So how do you think about that? Where did it begin for you? Tell me about your, the stories of your upbringing. How, what formed you? What formed your thoughts? Like questions like that. And if that's helpful for you, I'm glad to put like a little um, document of like some things that you can ask as a way forward if you're interested in that. Anybody interested in sort of like hear questions to kind of generate a conversation around that? Yes, no? No? Yes, yes? Okay. Um, so um, Jim, remind me. I may forget, but we'll try to remember to do that. Um, and then lastly, community. We're going to have to make community our highest value instead of a lot of other things. So that has to be at the top. Community has to be at the top, meaning this. I choose not only the path of discomfort towards other people to actually understand what they say and what they think and how they think, but to actually begin to do life with these people. That will be radical change from what's going on in our world today. I would love, so this is my, I'm not saying this is a good idea. I would love for there to be a group of people across the country who say, I'm shutting off all media, news, all this other stuff, except for what, the very little that I need to get to keep up on what's going on. It, it, and, but we're going to start actually meeting together subversively. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to advertise it. This isn't going to be some new, hip, cool thing to get lots of likes on social media. None of that. Like, that's it. We're hiding and we're doing this in private because it has nothing to do with what we're trying. We're not trying to put something out there. We're trying to grow ourselves. And we began doing that. Liberals meeting with conservatives, people of color, people who are white, people who are of different ethnicities, races, genders, everything, the whole, the whole shebang, people meeting together and starting to have conversation and doing it with this understanding that this is what Christ asked for and prayed for in John 17. Oh, that they might be one, even as you, Father, and I are one. Isn't that good? That's the way to finish, I think. You probably want to stay seated. I mean, you're welcome to stand, but um, I'm actually going to be reading Psalm 103. There's 22 verses. So you might just want to close your eyes. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. 
As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And it in its place remembers no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. So we just thank you for that scripture. May it wash you and uh, blessings on your week. Thank you.